Welcome to Just a GP podcast. My name is Ashley Broomfield and today I'm joined by my usual co-hosts Charlotte Hesby and Beck Hoffman. Today we're also joined by our special guest Dr Pamela Douglas who is a GP lactation consultant and researcher. Welcome Pamela. It's lovely to be with you all. I did a little bit of fangirl excited introduction for my highlight last week that you'd said yes to come on the podcast, but I'll give our listeners a bit of an overview. We wanted to talk to Pam about finding a passion in medicine, evaluating evidence of what works and doesn't work in terms of what we have in knowledge and then in clinical practice, making decisions to do research and then developing clinical techniques based on that research and what it means to create like a paradigm shift within the medical field and what goes around into doing that and, and bringing our own mental health in, in relation to that. So it's a big topic to cover and I'm sure we'll get some of it or at least the meaty parts done. But before we get into that, can you give us a highlight of your week, Pam? Yes, I can. It happened when I was reading to my little four-year-old grandson who lives in Brooklyn, New York City. And so every Wednesday at 10am, I read to him, which is bedtime Tuesday evening. Of course, I have to hold up 12 books for him to choose from. It's quite a process to even settle on a book. But then he discovered this week that he could click on the video icon and actually disappear. And so we started a game of Zoom hide and seek where I'm trying to read and then he clicks and disappears and I'm calling, Torin, where are you? And then he asked me to do the same. So I'm trying to read. He insists that I disappear. I disappeared and then there's a little voice calling, Nana Pam, where are you? And for me, actually, my grandson calling me in that way from the other side of the planet was a very moving moment. So that's what I thought I'd share with you today. Wow, that's wonderful, just how you can adapt technology to such a common game and have connection in that way. Yes, it's, um, you know, it's been oh, 20 months since I've seen him now, thanks to COVID. Visit that was planned was cancelled, of course. So yes, it was a very precious moment in my week. And Beck? I've been planning my highlight of the week based on yesterday. So yesterday was a proper spring day. The weather was amazing. We actually had sunshine that was warm. It was absolutely beautiful. And our practice has started a um, walking club at lunchtime where we actually, since the beginning of COVID, started closing at lunchtime to give everyone a bit of a breather and so we've kept that going but now we've started a walking club at lunchtime and walking club usually involves everyone putting on their warmest possible clothing they can find to go for a very quick walk but yesterday it was lovely we were out just enjoying the sunshine going for still a decent pace but a lovely walk around and it was just a beautiful way to spend the day and finally a feeling that spring might actually be here. And Charlotte? Uh, Look, I'll do a little brag for me in that I yesterday, finally, after a ridiculously long time, a research letter was published with the MJA that's part of my PhD. And it was ridiculous because it was with the MJA and they lost it. And 
you know, that sort of thing of, do you chase them up? Don't you chase them up? And so probably lost about five months as I was sort of being very patient. And finally, somebody said to me, just chase them up. And of course, they had lost it. And anyway, so regardless, and it's on implementing cardiovascular disease preventive care guidelines in general practice, and called an opportunity missed because despite the changes in cardiovascular disease guidelines in 2012, which were the hope that we would actually help GPs implement them, there's been no change at all. So we're still sitting at around about 50% of implementation of guidelines with high-risk patients. But go and read it. It's in the latest MJA. (laughs) Congratulations. So exciting. You know, when you have that sort of thing of you sometimes think it's just like pulling teeth and it's just never going to happen. So it was it was like, yay, it's there, it's happened. That's such a good segue, Charlotte. And so I'll make my highlight really quick in that I went for a lunchtime walk and I saw a massive python on the headland and it was super cool. I got the best video of it sneaking along and attempting to climb up a tree and it was was really really cool I haven't seen one that big in a a long time but I love how you brought up the challenges of pulling teeth in medicine because that's basically what I wanted to talk to Pam about so like I said previously Pam is a GP lactation consultant and researcher in the field of breastfeeding and infant sleep and she is the founder and director of the Possums Clinic in Brisbane, correct me if I'm wrong, Pam, and has started developing an accreditation for GPs, child and family health nurses, midwives and mental health professionals around the neuroprotective developmental care of infants and incorporating maternal breastfeeding support and maternal mental health as part of that. And I imagine it's been a really, really long journey and in that program we often talk about this paradigm shift of where the evidence is sitting and what we're doing in clinical practice and trying to help that paradigm along so why don't we start Pam of you giving us a bit of an idea about how you came to be doing what you're doing and what your journey has been like in that. Thanks Ash well you could say really that I found myself in general practice feeling a little bit as though I didn't belong. My first two years were very rich in Indigenous health actually and I have to say that the lessons I learnt there both clinically but in fact in a cross-cultural context have really shaped who I've been professionally for the rest of my life. And once I moved out of Indigenous health, I um, began suburban general practice, but really had difficulty around a sense of belonging to my profession. This was back in the days when there was quite a lot of clinical treatment that just didn't sit well with me, operating as I did even back then from frames of evolutionary biology and complexity, you could say. And this became particularly acute after I had my own children and qualified as a lactation consultant. I began to see, particularly in the area of the care of new families of women with babies, that quite a lot of what we were doing from where I sat was either not helping or worse, even making the distress of families 
exacerbate. So this was in the late 80s, early 90s, and there was a great deal of inappropriate medicalization of infant behavior. There was a kind of epidemic, if you like, of gastroesophageal reflux disease being diagnosed in babies from the first days, weeks, months of life. It actually started, believe it or not, here in Brisbane, that the concept that babies who were dialing up who were sort of fussing and crying quite a lot or who were fussing with feeds who were puking a lot had gastroesophageal reflux disease and and needed to be treated with medications and often changed on to formula if they were breastfeeding and so forth so I tracked that really closely and decided that this might be an area in which I could begin to make a contribution. I was really curious about why this diagnosis, if you like, was really taking off the way it did in the care of new families. So that was the very beginning of my research journey, if you like, noticing in the clinic a situation that seemed to me to not make sense and then going to the research literature and diving deeper and deeper into that at the same time as I was trying to find a place really for myself to belong and to feel as though I could really make a creative contribution to my own profession. Once you started looking, how did you then find what it was that was your passion and in a way that you could contribute? Well, it turned out, of course, that what was happening from a research point of view around unsettled babies was very much dominated by our colleagues, the paediatric gastroenterologists. So research around unsettled infant behaviour was located in journals like the Journal of Paediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. It was a very dominant place, for instance, for discussions around unsettled infant behaviour. And it was all through this lens that you could call a reductionist lens, like a a cause effect or sort of linear causative lens. But here I am with the generalist brain, you see. And this is where, I suppose, this is where I would argue that as GPs, we're uniquely placed to make sense of clinical problems in research because our brain is trained and perhaps by personality inclined to integrate across disciplines. So we're interested in social determinants of health and sociocultural milieu in the same way that we're interested in the biomedical. And applying that generalist lens to the research that was occurring back then around unsettled infant behaviour, I could see that contexts such as infant breastfeeding breastfeeding problems that weren't being diagnosed, broader contexts, how parents were being encouraged to either respond to their babies or put in place routinized care. None of this was being considered. And yet these kinds of socioculturally determined infant care practices have very definite measurable impacts on biomedical parameters. So for instance, if you're measuring intraesophageal pH, but the baby's been fasted for three or four hours prior, well, firstly, you're going to have a crying baby. And the crying itself contextually will impact frequency of reflux events. But you're going to have a baby who's refluxing acid. Or if the baby's given juice prior to the measurement of 
interests off a dual pH. So I started to see how contexts, behaviours that were surrounding the care of that baby was simply not being considered. So I guess, you know, more broadly, I learnt lessons around the kind of lens that's applied as we interpret research. And I then began to move deeper and deeper into applying a generalist's lens to the research around the care of mothers and babies, parents and babies, breastfeeding problems, cry fuss problems, sleep problems. So I would argue that the neuroprotective developmental care programs, which I began to develop up out of the research and deeply informed by my clinical experience, the product of our generalist brain. Actually, there's a nice phrase that my colleague, GP Dr. Johanna Lynch, uses in her work around integrative, truly holistic patient care, and that's the generalist gaze. And this is the gaze, this is the way I was able to interpret and integrate the literature to develop up neuroprotective developmental care. So informed by my qualifications in but passion for supporting breastfeeding, my broader deep interest in cross-cultural studies, evolutionary medicine, integrated with the neuroscience, all embedded in understandings of complexity and how a problem like a baby who's crying and fussing emerges out of multiple interacting factors that a single approach is not going to be effective. But if we start to bring together multi-domain approaches, we, we really can make a difference for this family and for this baby. So Pam, I'm really keen to interrupt you at this point, just because like everything that you've said, apart from the fact that you've said it in academic speak and not me and my, you know, thinking about how I've dealt with mums and babies in my practice, completely resonates with me because one of the issues that I've often found is, I mean, I see a lot of very lower socioeconomic mums and it takes often quite a lot of time to have persuaded them to breastfeed. These are definitely the babies from my perspective that are prime for being difficult. And of course they are then difficult and more unsettled and instantly everyone around them tells them that it's the breastfeeding that's the problem and that the baby is refluxing and so they throw them onto a bottle and the baby's still generally just as unsettled but I suppose I often find that they at least feel they've got more control because everybody stops nagging them then they can relax and then the baby relaxes and the baby improves and they all go, oh, of course it was the breastfeeding. And it's like, no, it wasn't the breastfeeding. <laughs> it was all the other stuff around the parenting and settling in and learning how to be a mum. And I was thinking it's so, it was always so sad and really difficult to get that that generalist lens on saying don't just go and blame the x y and z it's so much more complex than that this is just anyway I'm interested in your thoughts about that this is such a a real dilemma isn't it and I guess because Ash is very engaged in the NDC accreditation pathway and it's exactly this kind of problem that I've developed up skills really to manage in the clinical context. And so even though I was using academic speak, as you say, one important part of what we're doing is creating together a language that really makes sense 
two parents from whatever their walk in life. So a languaging that's deeply accepted, deeply non-judgmental, but then is able to bring the parent along to think about things a bit differently. I don't know, Ash, what your thoughts are, but it's taken years of experience, I would say, again, using the generalist brain in the clinic to put together the kind of language that really helps parents feel empowered to experiment with something different, or in this case, to hang in there and start to experiment with different ways of thinking about the breastfeeding. You know, it's also true, Charlotte, when you say that, although there are definitely factors that modify infant crying across cultures, within our culture, breastfed babies have been shown in at least one very large study to actually be more unsettled. And I would argue that that's because Gosh, we've had 60 years where research around breastfeeding has focused on at least establishing that human milk is optimal for human babies, you know. But we're still at a a frontier when it comes to the skills for clinically supporting breastfeeding. And so that mum, just as you say, will be getting so much conflicting advice, not even between disciplines, but from different providers, all of whom she may think really highly of within the one discipline, getting, you know, advice that can be directly contradictory. So we as a health system, I would argue, really let new parents down with the breastfeeding, but with infant care more broadly, because it's not been a research priority, you know, the the clinical care beyond. We do, obviously, we do the protection of, of life and protection against injury incredibly well but this whole area of neurohormonal synchrony you might call it between parents and their baby so that's the breastfeeding what happens with sleep how can we keep this little one as dialed down as possible mood that whole area we just don't do well as a health system I would argue. And I guess that's where the generalist approach or the general practice approach to looking at the research and what's missing there has been something that's come up for me as something that's really important that, you know, I can see externally that you've kind of been grappling with this discomfort in clinical practice and going, well, what can I do here? And instead of going into purely lactation consulting and just working in one area, you've gone, how can I actually enrich general practice? and how we look after mothers and babies at this period of time, how can I contribute to the evidence base to do that and how can I then use that evidence to develop resources for people? And I just think that that next step is so inspiring and I think, you know, I often think, I wonder what was the little key that really ballooned all this stuff out and I I really feel that in the last, say, three three to four years, I think it is. I can't remember the first conference that I went to one of your ALMs at, but when you started training GPs and primarily it's female GPs, it's almost like it exploded after that. And I'd be interested to hear what it looks like from your point of view. I feel like there's more and more clinicians that are now interested and wanting to do the training, incorporating to clinical practice connecting with each other and then referring other doctors in for, hey, there's this stuff out there that would be really useful to know. So, Ash, I'm going to be slightly confrontational here. Are you saying then that 
we really need the GPs to be on board with this far more than they have been because the midwife message isn't enough in terms of really making a difference. It's a bit like the smoking cessation thing. No, I think it's more that as a clinician, I often felt really helpless seeing mothers and babies and going, we know that it's not reflux and I know I can't give you a PPI because it's not very beneficial and it has been potentially shown to be harmful and, you know, babies just cry. That's kind of what I felt like we were taught in terms of support and you're doing a lot of mental health work. I see like similarly to Pam that there's so much that goes into a presentation or we would see in our generalist lens, there's so much that goes into a presentation that's far beyond the presenting complaint that we often have to kind of tease down and look at everything holistically. And I get the sense that in Pam's journey with her research and developing some of these ways to approach a clinical problem within a general practice context that takes into account the relationships at home, the mental health of the mother, the sleep science and research and is willing to let go of old practices that have been proven to be not beneficial and looking at other ways that you can bring in beneficial things. And I feel like that once kind of it was introduced to GPs, there's this model that you guys can use to look after mums and babies at this really difficult time. It was like a whole bunch of GPs went, oh, thank God I've got some tools that I can use. I can actually, and personally, you know, and there's probably a lens thing for me here too, but personally I found it so beneficial to actually be able to feel like I can work with women rather than feeling like I can't work with them and they just have to learn. And definitely the language around talking to women and the approach in terms of working with them and allowing them to discover their babies and discover their own bodies and find joy in that time rather than a path of stress and distress is is really, really helpful. So I guess it's more so that from where I sat, I could just see once Pam started kind of introducing training to GPs that it really started to kind of take hold and take off and she often talks about we're sitting in this paradigm shift of it's going to be a while before a lot of the things that she's uh, teaching becomes part of normal and standard practice but it's a process and so I'm I was just curious as to how she saw it from her end. It is true that possums and our neuroprotective developmental care programs are in a, a growth phase in fact, we've just now appointed a business development executive. And this is the a whole other thing, of course, because we're a charity, a health promotion charity in primary care, because where do you get funding to support innovation in primary care? That's a whole other thing we could talk about for a long period of time. So in the end, in 2013, I established with the help of supporters Possums for Parents with Babies as a charity. But I think it's true, Ash, I, I dare to hope it's true that in the last few years, there's been a, a sort of groundswell of finding value in these programs. And I mean, I find it very moving the way GPs, and the truth is, although we really welcome any male health professional who's interested, it does seem to be predominantly women and female GPs who really get this work. And I wonder if it's in some part that intersection between our personal embodied experiences with our own babies, 
realizing that a lot of what's offered to us, it's just not helpful or it's conflicting and confusing. And then having that personal experience of actually we can think about this in a completely different way and it's so much more enjoyable. And then, of course, bringing that to their work with new families parents with babies. So I wonder whether it's kind of like a situation where because women who are breastfeeding, who are having babies breastfeeding, are such a strong presence, a leadership presence really within general practice now, that we're as a group, we're driving change. We're collectively exercising leadership in paradigm shift, which is about empowerment for ourselves as mothers of babies and empowerment of our patients who are dealing with issues with their babies that's how I make sense of it you know so wonderful things like the check module that came out earlier this year put together by some of our NDC provider colleagues marks a really important milestone for us in bringing these programs into the mainstream also medical mums which is broader than just our GP colleagues, but strong presence of GPs, have a very active Possums Facebook page. I think over a thousand doctors, mostly women doctors from Australia and New Zealand, who are interested, who are using the NDC or Possums approaches. These things I find, it's what gives me courage, it's what gives me heart, because the obstacles have been quite profound and yet my colleagues, if you like, my tribe, my fellow GPs are very strongly supportive and that's what gives me the heart to keep going actually. I'm actually part of that Facebook group. It is a very, very active Facebook group. It's a beautiful group to be a part of. I was really interested in your journey, how you've gone from being a GP in the suburbs who is noticing potentially that all these babies are being diagnosed with a disease that they'll carry that diagnosis for a very long time to deciding that you were going to do some research into it or you're going to track it and then that perhaps there's something else going on to then along the way deciding that not only will you decide to change your behavior that you'll decide to discuss this with other people and train them and talk about how we can all improve how we educate and support mums. Yeah, I was thinking a bit about this in preparation for our chat today and I wonder whether it isn't really about meaning, about purpose. What was my purpose within the practice of medicine, within general practice? What gave me a sense of really making my own little contribution? So I think it's actually been look at my own search for fulfillment professionally. And, you know, it, of course, it just happens incrementally. And it's fundamentally driven by the desire to alleviate unnecessary suffering for women and their babies in such a, a vulnerable time of life. I guess we all share that a bit, you know, the desire to alleviate suffering and support well-being and a sense of joy in life. I guess that's something that drives us fundamentally as GPs. And for me, I could see if I narrowed down my gaze here in this one little area, then I may be able to make a contribution that not only helped the lives, but that gave me a sense of purpose and of, of satisfaction and 
and I have to say, never bored. <laughs> you know, there's always much more to do than I can possibly do because of this project that I've set myself. But it's been an incredibly rich path connecting with so many wonderful people and, and the sense of it then becoming a shared project, a shared movement that others own this and start to run with it. It's deeply satisfying. So I suppose for those listening you know in a way I started out having some difficulty around belonging what was my place here did I actually belong in general practice perhaps I saw the world a bit differently and yet actually at this time in my life you know turning 60 this year I am absolutely in the right place this is my tribe general practice this is really I would argue, and I can say this because I'm speaking amongst colleagues, the most intellectually demanding and satisfying discipline within the practice of medicine, exactly because we span across disciplines. We're so interested in the social sciences, indeed even the humanities, as well as biomedical realities. And we're managing complexity every moment of the day, really. Oh, here, here. <laughs> you are singing our song. It is, it's such a beautiful thing, that complexity, to me, that generalism is just so magnificent because it makes me understand things in a way that I can't do from that disease siloed approach. And I just love it. I love that. That's it. And the opportunity to think creatively, to to really think creatively, which is, I feel, what I've done, even working within the confined discourse of research then it's really understanding what it is to inquire what it is to make sense of data what it is to pose those questions and of course there's so much within evidence-based practice that has required interrogation we've had to think about really deeply because there have been real limitations around the kind of research that's been conducted in medicine and this is where the generalist brain, again, in research is the way of the future. This is the way of health system reform. If as GPs, we can start to really engage clinical research and, of course, be valued within the health system, this is how we keep those costs down in terms of health budgets. This is how we promote well-being in our communities. I absolutely 100% agree with everything that you've said, Pam. And I was kind of pondering this the other day and thinking sometimes people do a PhD because they have to, because it's part of what they're supposed to do to get a job at a tertiary centre or it's part of the process to show that they're interested in research as part of their fellowship or, you know, they're kind of pushed along into it because everybody else is doing it and it's kind of a, a competitive thing. And you know, in general practice land, none of us have to do PhDs, none of us have to do research. And sometimes I think the most rich research does come from sitting with that discomfort and going, what is it here that I can look at that I could change? And is there some level of inquiry that is missing here that we can do differently? And that's what I think is really, really interesting about GPs doing research because we do come at it from that different lens and we can contribute in an entirely different way from passion rather than expectation or necessity. That's right and that's how you want to do a PhD because it's such a big undertaking but you know Ash my PhD was squarely within the humanities actually so 
it was a PhD in women's studies and creative writing. And it was sort of an accidental PhD in many respects because I have been so interested in the stories that women tell about their experiences when they're pregnant, when they're having a baby and in those very early months of their baby's life, that I, from when I first had my own little ones, began writing down those stories, my own story, and the stories that women told out of their very embodied experiences. But see, back then, my daughter was born in 1990, women could not and were not writing out of their subjective experience. There was a silence. It was taboo. And it was only as the 90s progressed and books came out like Susan Mousehart's The Mask of Motherhood and so on, that women began to be able to write and own their very personal embodied experiences of this such vital transfigurative time of a woman's life and so I'd been gathering up stories in in appropriate ways you know from my patients my own life and that was in the end what turned into a PhD for me but it was something I was passionate about and again something that has deeply informed the work that's gone into developing up neuroprotective developmental care and my research through the general practice medical. It's so fascinating, isn't it? It's that to me what you're describing is that the true GP is because it's the love of the patient's story. You just got captured into the joy of the motherhood and where that lay and the story, which is, of course, then had that medicalization sort of aspect of it with the breastfeeding. But really, I think you're, again, sort of talking about that wonderful passion and joy that we have in being able to share in people's stories. So, I mean, I often say to people, I'm so lucky. I love doing what I do because it's such a privilege to hear people's stories and to be part of their journeys and hope that you can make a difference in being able to open up their eyes and understanding sometimes to being able to deal with it or make choices about where they go with their health. Absolutely. Caring for a woman's emotional well-being post-birth through the whole pregnancy birth then the post-birth period is vital, of course. And acceptance and commitment therapy, so applied functional contextualism, is, I think, a set of tools that's beautifully suited for us to use within consultations with families who have babies. I'd love to talk to you more about it, and I know we're running out of time, but it's certainly an important part of the neuroprotective developmental care programs. We look at ACT within the perinatal period and what might be some key strategies there that you can have in your toolkit to introduce into that time-constrained consultation. Very powerful, values-based work with families. Yes, and from a professional perspective, I can see how that's seeded into your lens and approach and development of the program as well because there's very clear language that's quite compassionate and accepting and you know you you can sense that the programs are written in that way within a value structure that is consistent with yours. Yes that's right and it doesn't require a diagnosis obviously we need to be alert to diagnoses where appropriate but it's a set of of strategies 
for just the mum who's anxious as well as for the dad who's feeling depressed or it's transdiagnostic as a set of strategies and so very flexible in its application and I think that's one of the beauties of ACT. So perhaps we can get to you on at another time Pam and, and talk a little bit more about how you look after yourself in this kind of work and how this type of model has helped you in that process. But for now, I will seek to ask some of the other presenters who haven't had as much to say as myself for their (laughs) resource of the week. Beck. So my resource of the week is actually a little bit of a plug for the New Fellows Committee. So each of the states have their own New Fellows Committee and they're now all actually talking to each other at a national level as well, which is quite exciting. What that means is, especially during 2020, we can offer an awful lot more virtual and online events and a few different things to what we've done previously. So if you are a New Fellow and you're not aware of the committee and haven't had any information or met any of us, jump online to the RACGP website and our links to our events and details about us are on there. Charlotte? Thanks, Beck, and thanks, Pam, for your stimulating talk. I'd like to sort of put in a plug at this point in time for going and joining some social networking. I just think that some of the sharing of ideas it's a bit like Beck was saying go and join the new fellows if you're not in a sort of a social networking group then you can always create one too even with a whatsapp group or make contact with your faculty of the RACGP certainly in New South Wales ACT we've got some really good ways of being able to share what's going on and talking about ideas because I think From my perspective, I think a lot of where we go is that whole thing of the thinking, pondering, sharing and having the aha moment and then it can grow from there. But we've got a a number of different options that suit you. So if you're not a person who goes on Facebook, there might be some other options to be able to join in the learnings. And so my resource is going to be linked to probably what Pam is going to talk about. But if you're Wanting to just have a look at some of what we're talking about today is you can pop on to possumsonline.com and you can have a click around in terms of what's available there. I have shared the website before, but my, my new favourite resource to share with parents is the PIPS resources and it's extremely affordable and I have now started recommending it to my antenatal women because I get them to sign up and look at some of the resources before baby's coming home so they can get acquainted and get an idea um, of what to expect and some different things to consider before baby comes and they get access to a closed Facebook group which is moderated by NDC accredited practitioners which is really helpful so that's my new favorite resource to share with parents. Pam? Well, thanks, Ash. So I suppose I need to just invite anyone who's interested to actually join up the NDC accreditation pathway. Actually, we've got a conference coming up at the end of October and a set of modularised online masterclasses 
is also available. But if you're after the pathway, there's a portal that gives you immediate access to all our downloadable parents' handouts and, you know, videos, clinical tools, and access to our very lovely close Facebook community, the NDC participants, a newsletter that's started to come out regularly now for people in the pathway. So that would be my invitation. And I'd like to thank you very much for the opportunity to come and have a chat today too. Thank you, Pam, and we would love to have you back on. Well, I'd very much enjoy that. Thanks, Pam. I'm looking forward to part two. Thank you. <laughs>